If you could rate the quality or the value of animal protein, what number would you give that? I'd give it about a range of between eight and 10 for the different animal proteins. What about in terms of human health and how would that number shift? Uh, something between zero and one. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Orlando, Florida, Boise, Idaho, Everett, Washington. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 20 of season 5, number 319 overall. And we're going to call today an Exam Room Express. The episode certainly shorter than usual, but perhaps even more impactful than our hour-long episodes. Because today we will be joined by a man who has contributed more to our collective understanding of health than almost anyone else in history. The China study alone has earned him a spot on the Mount Rushmore of nutrition, but it is his continued efforts and lifetime of studies that have made him a legend. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is my guest, and today is all about protein. And you know the knock on protein. Plant protein is not as powerful as animal protein. It is inferior, and if you don't eat meat, you just can't get what you need. So today, with Dr. Campbell, we are going to do a little head-to-head comparison. He will be examining the quality of both forms to see if it's possible to crown a protein champion for your nutritional needs. And judging by the little tease at the top of the show, you can probably get a sense for how this is going to shake out. And we're not stopping there either, because the plant-based boom has brought a ton of options for veg-curious shoppers and grocery stores. But if you flip over the packages on a lot of those foods and take a look at the ingredients, you might see something on there called soy protein isolates. We're going to be examining what they are and why Dr. Campbell considers these isolates to be a mixed bag for your health. Also on the docket, why he ranks nutrition as the single most important factor for your health and why he says it is a critical step in preventing cancer. So lots to cover with Dr. Campbell, who will also be speaking at the Fairfax VegFest on April 24th, just outside of Washington, D.C. in Herndon, Virginia. He will be there alongside of Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Jim Loomis, plus James Wilkes from the Game Changers and so many other speakers and vendors. And I am honored to be the MC for the day. So we hope to see you there and we'll be talking more about the event in a little bit. Also today, researchers at Penn State have been studying the effects of red and processed meat, but oftentimes when we talk about them, it's in terms of cancer. But what about other chronic diseases? What about hypertension? That is what this study looks at, and what researchers found leaves little doubt that there is an undeniable connection between the two. One that has doctors sitting up and paying closer attention to what their patients are eating. 
I'll have details on that after our conversation with Dr. T. Colin Campbell and that chat about protein, animal versus plant, isolates, and so much more. And that conversation begins right now. Sir, thank you so very much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure indeed. Let me ask you kind of a loaded question right out of the gate. And that question is, if you could rate the quality or the value of animal protein on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest value and 1 being the lowest, what grade or what number would you give that? Um, animal protein as a group of proteins in animals are more or less the same. I'd rate it, I'd give it about uh, a range of between 8 and 10 for the different animal proteins. And what about in terms of rating it for human health and how would that number shift on the scale of one to 10? Uh, something between zero and one. <laughs> there we go. And I think that people would be surprised to know that you didn't always necessarily uh, realize that it was only along uh, your professional career and the research that you were doing that you kind of really reached the conclusion that, yeah, this is really something that humans should be avoiding. Absolutely. Um, you know, I started up my career on a farm that was consistent with that belief of believing in animal protein, uh, and then uh, discovering uh, fairly early in my career that that wasn't necessarily true. So it led to a lengthy career and lots of people and examining that question. Is it really true that animal protein is as high quality as what we maintain it is? That was the question. And Let's talk about, let's keep this in the context of human health and how much or how little there is benefit to consuming animal protein as a human. Let's talk about the quality there in terms of animal protein and plant protein for human consumption, which uh, gives the bigger protein boost. And then we can talk about the different health benefits and health detriments that come with them. Okay. So animal protein is generally regarded, has been for a long time is high quality. And what that means in a technical sense is that of the protein being consumed at some moment in time, uh, the proteins that is that it has the highest proportion of the protein being retained by the body for doing good things, that's considered high quality. In other words, it's just sim a very simple little determination in a test situation of the protein we consume. If we can retain more, that's a good deal. That's high quality. And all the animal proteins tend to have that property. There's, there's some variation among them, but they're all higher than all the plant proteins. But it turns out retaining more protein, which most people aren't aware of, that's the way we do it. That's why it's high quality. It sounds good. Uh, that initially was for the purpose of growing animals faster. And sure enough, more protein causes animals to grow faster, which in, in the case of animal production and that sort of thing, on the farm, it's a good deal. Uh, somehow that got translated for humans in a sense that uh, higher protein, higher quality protein might make us grow faster when we're young. Uh, and yes, maybe it does a little bit, but it's hardly noticeable, but nonetheless, it's probably true. That's not necessarily the best way to grow up uh, because when you grow faster, it raises the risk for, uh, especially in women, uh, raise the risk for a higher risk for breast cancer, uterine cancer, uh, among other things. So, and it turns on 
uh, the synthesis of blood cholesterol, which is associated with heart disease. So the so-called high-quality protein, I'd like, I'd like to, uh, that's not, we shouldn't call it high-quality. It is only for the purpose of growing animals faster, but not for creating human health, no way. So let's let's talk about that. Have you heard of any plant proteins that would then lead to cancer as animal proteins have been linked to do uh, triggering high cholesterol in people as animal proteins have been known to do? How do the detriments of plant protein compare to those of animal protein, if there are any? Well, the, the plant proteins, I, I know of no evidence that actually turn on cholesterol uh, increase your cholesterol and, and turn on cancer and heart disease and that kind of thing. They just don't. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I need to point out one little bit of caveat here in a sense. When we talk about how much protein we're consuming or the kind of protein we consume, remember, we're talking about whole food. And then, so in that set of setting, as we consume more animal protein, we tend to consume less plant protein or more animal foods, less plant foods. That generates quite a number of changes that participate in this relationship, all to the good if we go to plants. And I also want to ask you about kind of the effect that if we were to shift toward a more plant predominant or completely plant-based diet, what do you estimate the effect would be on the rates of cancer throughout this country and then worldwide? Well, if we compare countries, which has been done uh, for a number of different diseases, it turns out that uh, we see a straight line relationship from almost no animal protein consumption or animal food consumption up to, say, fairly high levels like we do in the West. And when you do it that way, it turns out there's a straight line relationship come right down to the point of zero animal protein intake, in which case then the diseases are at their lowest. So as soon as we make that kind of comparison, as soon as societies start putting animal protein into their diet, Lots of things begin to change. That's when these diseases like cancer and kidney disease, that's when they all start to increase right from the lowest level. So, uh, so it's my thought, my interpretation that uh, we don't need animal protein for anything. To that end, what then would the effect be on the pharmaceutical industry should we all shift toward a more plant-based diet? Great question. Uh, you know, we... Uh, we get health from eating plants, and so if we eat the animal protein, animal protein-based foods, that's where we get the sickness. That's where heart disease, cancer, and all that sort of thing occurs. And so for some reason, that's what we've done. Most of us, we consume more and more animal foods, thinking that's a good health when, in fact, it's not. It, it creates more disease conditions, which account for most of the health care cost bill. And most of the health, much of the health care cost bill really has to do with use of pharmaceuticals. So on the one hand, we, we, we're sort of consuming the food that makes us sick. And then in turn, really, I'm sort of expecting, oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll get that taken care of. We've got some drugs. So we end up using drugs as the, the, a as the solution to our messing around with the wrong food. If we were to use uh, nutrition in the right way, consume the right food, uh, and not get sick, not nearly <laughs> at the level we do, reduce it maybe 80, 90% at least, uh, we would have much less use for pharmaceuticals.
That's a huge number, 80 to 90%. I mean, that's the, I'm sure that there are people that really just stood up and, and it's certainly those who are working in that industry. I'm sure that they may have even just gotten some chills down their spine. Yeah, unfortunately, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I was in pharmacology, so I know that community quite well and I published most of my papers in that community. So yeah, that, that idea is, is uh, the purpose of that sort of effort is to create drugs to take care of our sickness. When I suddenly learned over, over time that uh, why, do, why do we have to get sick? You know, is there a way to keep us from getting sick? And of course, that's nutrition. So the, more, the, the healthier we are by consuming, let's say, plant-based food, plant-based diet, then we need less and less uh, drugs. So let me ask you this then. What would your message be to somebody? And, and I hear from uh, people who watch the show all the time. And they say, well, listen, Chuck, you know, my grandmother, my grandfather, they lived to be 90 years old and they ate a steak every day. They smoked a pack of Marlboros every day. They ate bacon for breakfast every morning and they still live to this ripe old age. To me, that seems like that would be the exception rather than the rule. But as somebody who's really devoted their career and their life to doing this type of research on proteins, I mean, what would your message be to that person? Well, it's about the same as people who smoke all their lives and get lived to be 90 and 95, and about 5% of those people actually survived until that long. Uh, they're paying some consequences, but they say, I got here because I was smoking. It was a crazy idea. Uh, we have to remember that uh, most people, you know, uh, would suffer the consequences of smoking like that. The same thing with animal protein. So in science, it's one of the things we just have to live with. There are always going to be some exceptions. But in this particular case, the number of exceptions that are able to survive on the wrong diet or survive on using cigarettes or whatever the case may be, doing the wrong thing, that percentage is very low. And if we study it a little more carefully, I, I, I mean, I think that we could find out the uh, uniqueness of that small number of people. Maybe they have better genes, possibly, give them a little more strength to, you know, coming out of the gate, so to speak. Or maybe they are doing some other things that, you know, might help them out. So we can always talk about that. But yeah, they're going to, they're going to be exceptions. But the, the rule is far greater than the exception. And really, I don't think that many people would argue with that. I mean, how many people do you know who live to be 95 years old and are smoking a pack of cigarettes a day? You know, it's it's very right. few. Um, I want to ask you about the World Health Organization's classification of red and processed meat. We know that those are carcinogenic. Obviously, those are animal proteins. But in your estimation, should other animal proteins be lumped into that same level of classification? So they were both bad, if you will. The process, uh, there was some indication it was a little worse. That got the headlines, and I'm really convinced because I've worked with that organization. That really uh, was a a way out of the mess. We didn't have to talk too much about just eating meat. It was a kind of an excuse. Oh yeah, let's not eat the processed meats, which we most of the time, most people don't know what a processed meat really is and what was the basis for the its effect. And so uh, the real message should have been, let's, let's cut out anim all animal foods, processed or otherwise. So, okay, so let me just uh, clarify here. So we're talking about uh, a lot of people view a, a lean meat, like a, a just chicken breast by itself as a health food. But in your estimation, that's right on par with that red steak or that hot dog that the WHO has been talking about. 
Of course, it's, it's much, I don't see really any major difference uh, at all. Uh, I mean, we might, you know, look very in some details and here and there, scientists will find this or that or something else, and then make headlines out of it occasionally. Uh, but uh, broadly speaking, it's all the same. And the same would go for the protein found in eggs and in dairy products as well? Yes, definitely. The other question that we get from time to time, we have about five minutes left here. The other question that we get from time to time is, well, what about complete proteins? They say, well, look, you know, I, I'm interested in eating a little bit healthier, but I'm worried that if I take meat or dairy out of my diet, I'm not going to get a complete protein. Um, is it possible for somebody to get all of the proteins, the various kinds of protein that they need while still eating a plant-based diet and not have to worry about missing out on one amino acid or another? Absolutely. Quick answer. Yes, we can get all the protein we need from plant-based foods. Each of them have somewhat different compositions of so-called amino acids, but when you combine them, as we do in a normal setting, uh, we're getting all the, all the amino acids we need, all the so-called uh, good quality uh, uh, protein. That's, we don't need to have it all in just one, one uh, food source like me. <laughs> so basically nothing to worry about there. Nothing, absolutely nothing. That's a, that, that, that is kind of a misnomer in a, in a sense. Um, as the, well, let's, let's talk about a specific type of protein here. As the plant-based movement has been growing, you go to the grocery store, you look in the frozen food aisle and you just see this explosion of frozen plant-based offerings. And if you flip over the package, you look at the ingredients label, a lot of times you'll see something called a protein isolate. Uh, what is a protein isolate and is that something that you would consider to be healthy or is that something that we should really look to be avoiding? Well, as the way I see it, it's kind of a mixed bag in that industry at the moment. Uh, some people are uh, isolating protein, if you will, whey protein, casein by itself, that sort of stuff that's being added to food. That's an isolate that's away from the normal food itself. Uh, but some of that, uh, that industry is moving forward by just simply synthesizing proteins, you know, from a, we call it a nucleic acid template and you know, in a vat or something like that, they're synthesizing proteins that have the same composition of animal foods because they're, they're enamored with the idea of making high quality animal, uh, uh, protein. That's not necessary. In fact, that's, that's accomplishing nothing when they do that. Others are using protein, whether they call it isolates or not, I don't know, but they're using protein from plants, especially from soy and legume proteins. Uh, and so, uh, I, I guess some of them would call it isolate, I guess, if you isolate it out. But uh, on the other hand, if you use the whole food to get that protein, it's, it, we're, we're in good shape. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, the, the majority of listeners of this show are, are trying to gravitate toward a whole food plant-based diet. Um, and when we talk about, again, getting all of those complete proteins, a lot of the advice that's been given with various experts on this show has been to eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, beans, grains, all of the above. Uh, sounds to me like that is the best uh, way to go. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I'm all in with that. That's absolutely. <laughs> I like that terminology, all in. I say that all the time. I love it. Um, two more quick ones for you. Um, you talk a lot about this reductionist view of nutrition that we have, by and large, as a society. So when you talk about the reductionist view, what what do you mean by that? And where are we going wrong with that? 
Well, you know, we tend to think the reductionist view is focusing on one detail at a time. We tend to think as far as the causation of disease is concerned in, regarding food, it's one nutrient, you know, operating through one mechanism that lends itself to pharmaceutical intervention, maybe, to produce one disease. That is the modern medical system, and I'm totally opposed to that philosophy. Uh, when you take things out of, out of context, we should be thinking more about the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And we got lots of evidence to really demonstrate that and that, that idea in spades. Uh, so when nutrients are in food, they do their good thing if it's the right kind of food. If we take it out and put it someplace else in a pill or something like that, we don't we cannot expect them to get the same effect. And so what we need to do is to consume whole foods as much as possible. And then the last one that I have for you, sir, again, thank you so much for your time today, um, is that we'll also hear from people who say, well, look, you know, I'm going to continue to eat steak. I'm going to continue to eat chicken. I'm going to continue to eat fish. Uh, but what I'm going to do is limit my exposure to the sun and I'm going to exercise, both of which have been proven to reduce the risk of chronic disease, specifically cancer. Um, in terms of comparing the other steps that a person can take to lower the risk, of developing cancer, how would you rank nutrition there? I would rank nutrition very, very high. I, I don't know, I can't put a number on it, but I would put it in the neighborhood of uh, at least 80 to 90% of the total effect that you can achieve. Exercise, yes, is good, there's no question about that. And an interesting thing about it, exercise, appropriate, exercising with a good diet at the same time, that's where you get the big bang for the buck. The same with sunshine, we need sunshine. Sent, you know, to get synthesis of vitamin D and so forth. So a combination of sunshine, adequate water is very important, um, and uh, exercise and, and good food. That's the whole package. And we can't do much better than that. There you go. That's that's the secret to it all. Dr. T. Colin Campbell, again, going to be at the Fairfax VegFest Sunday, April 24th. Visit fairfaxvegfest.org for tickets and information. Thank you so very much for your time, my friend. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that too. A quick episode, but a fantastic one. And one that I think should help you answer some questions the next time anyone asks you about protein on a plant-based diet. So I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Campbell for such an extraordinary conversation. Would you believe that we wound up talking for another half hour after we finished the interview? I mean, he is just such a kind and warm soul, and he absolutely loves what he does. There is no questioning that he loves it as much today as he did on the very first day way back when. Now, don't forget, if you are in the Washington, D.C. area, we will be at the Fairfax VegFest on April 24th. Dr. Campbell will be speaking and I will be emceeing, and it's going to be a fantastic time. Also speaking that day, Dr. Neil Barnard, James Wilkes from the Game Changers, our own Dr. Jim Loomis, plus Cortland Malloy from the Washington Post, and that is a guy who, if you are unfamiliar, this is a guy who has really improved his own health after switching to a plant-based diet. Also speaking that day, Dr. Baxter Montgomery and so many others. 
And I want to take a second too to give a big tip of the cap to Gwen Whitaker from Green Fair Organic Cafe for helping to put everything together. It's such an enormous undertaking and she works tirelessly to educate all of us about the power of proper foods. And her food at the cafe is banging. I don't know any other way to say it other than it is absolutely banging. And speaking of banging foods, you know that there's going to be some really good stuff out there at the VegFest as well. So to get a full list of speakers and vendors, head over to fairfaxvegfest.org. And we have a link to that right now in the episode notes. Now, coming up on the next episode, Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be making a house call, his monthly live Q&A. And we're going to be recording that on Wednesday, March 9th at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and Facebook. Join us live or right back here on the podcast on Thursday. We're going to be taking a special look at gut health and cancer in honor of Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And red and processed meat absolutely will be a topic of discussion that day. But they're also a topic of discussion right now because researchers at Penn State are examining how steak and lunch meat are contributing to the rates of high blood pressure. Let's head to the exam room news desk for the 411. Nearly half of all adults in the U.S. have high blood pressure, and new research shows that red meat and deli slices could be a big part of the problem. An analysis of more than 31,000 people shows that those who ate the most steak and lunch meat were more likely to have high blood pressure. The study also finds that those who struggled with food insecurity were 36 to 50% more likely to have hypertension than those of greater means who ate less processed meat. Researchers say replacing just one serving of red meat per day lowered the risk of hypertension by up to 15%. The study is published in the Journal of Hypertension. Now, regarding food insecurity, the study finds that nearly one out of five participants struggled with it. One out of five. In a country as large and as wealthy as the United States, that is a tough pill to swallow. Now, also, while the study, when it was talking about substitutions for red meat, in the interest of fairness, it did include fish, chicken, eggs, and dairy. But there is one quote from the press release that I would like to single out for you one that does not mention any of those other protein sources. Said co-investigator Jabril Ba, quote, Our research also showed that substituting plant-based foods for red and processed meats could help prevent hypertension. So of all of the options, Professor Ba singles out plant-based foods. And why is that? Well, it's because previous research has shown that a plant-based diet can reduce the risk of hypertension by 34%. That is more than double what was found in this particular study that included all of those other protein sources. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to the extraordinary Dr. T. Colin Campbell for being here, inspiring us, and helping to raise our protein health IQs. 
And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>